Isaac had heard the story many times. He had heard the story of how his parents had tried for decades to have children, but none ever came. And then he was told often of the time when the Lord God came to his father Abraham and promised that one day Abraham would be blessed. And he would be blessed in such a way that he would have many descendants. So much so that if you could number the stars in the sky and the the grains of sand on the beach, that then and only then would you be able to count the descendants that Abraham would have. And yet all of that started with one son, Isaac himself. Isaac enjoyed hearing the story of God healing his mother's barrenness so that she might conceive and give birth at 90 years old. Isaac enjoyed remembering and knowing that God had begun to keep his promise to Abraham by bringing him into the world. And yet now it looked like that promise to his father Abraham was going to fail. For like his own mother before now, his wife couldn't conceive. They could not have a child together. And so Isaac began to pray. He called out to the God who reversed the barrenness of his mother and begged that God would give him a child of his own, that the promise might continue. When the God who hears the prayers of his people, the God who is faithful to his promises, heard the prayer of Isaac and granted his request, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, conceived. But she didn't just conceive one child. She conceived two. God gave her twins. And she knew this because it was not long into her pregnancy, whether it was cooking meals for her husband, whether it was perhaps working around the house or in the fields, or whether it was just relaxing. She began to feel like something was wrong in her womb. There was something not right. There was pain. In fact, there was so much pain, she wondered how she could still live, and she began to cry out to God asking, What is going on? What is happening to me? And God responded to her directly with words that would only be fully understood with the perspective of history. God said, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Born to Isaac and Rebekah were two boys who could not have been more different. Esau, the firstborn, was strong, an outdoorsman, a hunter, who was loved dearly by his father. And Jacob, the younger, was more reserved, more domestic, his mother's favorite. And what began in the womb continued throughout their life, struggle. Struggle for attention, struggle for affection, struggle for dominance in the family. But as God had foretold, the normal pattern to their lives would be turned upside down even in the midst of that struggle. For the stronger firstborn would not be the recipient of the special privileges. He would not have the inheritance of the family. He would not be the one to provide leadership and carry on, as it were, the family name. Instead, the younger, the weaker brother would be the recipient of the greater privilege and would in fact be served by the older. Jacob would come to be blessed by God and have his name changed to Israel. He would become the father not of one son, not of two, but of twelve sons. And these twelve sons would be blessed by God in such a way that they would become twelve tribes and would become the very nation of Israel that would be the people of God. But Jacob's struggle with Esau would not end with him and his brother. 
Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see descendants of Jacob and Esau, the nations of Israel and Edom, at constant conflict with one another. In fact, this conflict, as it were, builds even on into the New Testament when we see God's promised king from His promised people Israel being born. And yet there is another king, King Herod who was born from the same land of the Edomites, from the descendants of Esau, trying to kill the son of Jacob, the little boy who would one day be king. This morning we return to our sermon series called According to Plan. And if you remember, this series is looking, in fact, at how God is shaping all of history according to His plan in His Son, Christ Jesus. We are looking at the larger storyline of the Bible, the big picture, as it were, that runs through all of the books of the Bible. And therefore, each week we look at just one book of the Bible and see how God picks up the story and advances it according to His plan and His purposes, both for His glory and the good of His people. And this morning we return to this series toward the end of the Old Testament. We have seen so far much, much more than we could ever faithfully summarize this morning. Nevertheless, let me try. We began by seeing God creating all things by the power of His Word, and yet we have seen those things, while though being created good and perfect and right, Humanity corrupting them by their sinful rebellion against God. It was humanity that brought sin into God's good world. And yet we have seen how God promised, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of judging sin, to bring redemption, to bring reconciliation and restoration, not just of His relationship to humanity, but to all creation itself. We have seen... Him bringing about this plan for sinners throughout time. He's saving all of humanity through Noah and then making the promises we just heard to Abraham and choosing to work through him to bring the promise to all nations, the promise of salvation and redemption. And yet, and yet even with the promise of salvation, even with his mighty blessings on Israel, the blessing of His presence among them, His gracious covenant promises to them. Israel continued the pattern that was set forward by the very first people, Adam and Eve, in that as a whole, they rebelled against God as well. And though God judged, that is, though God warned that judgment would come for their sin unless they repent, As a whole, the people of God ignored those warnings and they persisted in their sinful rebellion, rejecting the one true and living God. And the result was both a fracturing of the nation. The people of God split into two, but more than that, eventually all of the nations, both the north and the south, fell to the peoples around her in battle. You see, God said that as long as you are my people and you are faithful to me, I will protect you. I will be with you. I will have my hand of prosperity upon you. But he warned, should they fail to keep his promises, should they fail to be his ambassadors, his priests to the world, then that protection will be removed. And year after year, decade after decade, in fact, over a century of warning, turn back To me, the people refused and therefore judgment came through the nations around Israel. Even the capital, Jerusalem itself, where the very center of life for the people of God was. The place where the temple of God was kept and symbolically God resided with His people. The place where the prophets proclaimed God's word from. The place where the king sat and 
issued decrees and led the people of God, all of this fell to the Babylonians, the judgment from God. And now, in fact, God's people had been uprooted from their land and sent off into exile among the nations. And it's here that the story of Jacob and Esau continues. Through the descendants of these two men, nations remain in conflict. And yet, it's even in the midst of this conflict, even in the midst of being in exile, that Israel needs to know. Even at its lowest, being kicked in the gut, as it were, while it's down. Israel needs to know that God is still in control and that He has not forgotten His people. That He has not forgotten His promises. Regardless of the appearance, God is still sovereign. He is still just. And most importantly for Israel, he is still merciful. And these are the things that we want to be reminded of today as we look to the book of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah. Now some of you this morning, I know, are really going to either need those Bible tabs or you're going to have to humble yourself and go to the table of contents and find Obadiah. And not just because you probably haven't read Obadiah in a long time, but because it is in fact the smallest of the Old Testament books. It is hidden away, tucked in the minor prophets. And yet, even this small book provides us a large picture of the realities that affect all people for all time. So I encourage you, as you find the book of Obadiah, to follow along as I read. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunder has come by night, how have you been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. I will not on that day, declares the Lord, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. 
And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. For there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are still in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of God. Now let's be honest here. This is not the kind of Bible chapter or book that you typically find all kinds of devotional literature being written about, right? I mean, you do not go in there and find the prayer of Obadiah devotional, right? And book cover and Bible and everything else. I mean, you just, you just don't find that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I think if we will take the time to think through what Obadiah is telling us from the Lord himself, we will see massive truths about God that will not only feed our souls, but give us direction for how we are to live our lives today. It will build us up in our faith in God Specifically, what we want to see from Obadiah is the justice and mercy of God and his sovereign victory over sin. The justice and mercy of God and his sovereign victory over sin. And we see this being expressed by at least three central truths, I think, in this book. The first one is this. We need to come to see the spiritual conflict between God's people and the world. The spiritual conflict between God's people and the world. Several years ago, Chuck Colson, I was reading, uh, the founder of Prison Fellowship Ministry, was speaking at an Indiana State prison. It was a prison not for um, people who had only done light crimes, but those that had done severe crimes. And he was there to speak both to the Christians that were there as well as those that were not Christians presenting the gospel. And when he was done uh, making... Uh, all of his talks, giving his, uh, his sermons, he took all the volunteers that were with him and said, come on, we need to go. Because Colson had an appointment to meet the governor. And there was a plane waiting for him to take him. He had to be there in two hours. And so he said, our time is up. We, we have to leave. But one volunteer turned back. He had, he had slipped away from the group and was in fact talking with one of the inmates. And the volunteer said, if you'll just give us another minute, Mr. Colson. And, Mr. and Chuck Colson said, no, I'm sorry, time's up, we've, we've, we've got to go. And the volunteer said, please, just another minute. You see, I'm Judge Clement. This is James Brewster. I sentenced this man to death, but now he is a brother in Christ, and we want to pray together. Well, Colson said he, he couldn't move. He didn't know what to say. There, there was no response to that kind of beautiful picture of the power of the gospel at work in the lives of these two men. It was an amazing story that presents the Christian answer to the question, am I my brother's keeper? And yet, unfortunately, it is not the kind of answer that we see in Obadiah. We do not see a good response to the question, am I my brother's keeper in this book? The immediate circumstance 
of what is happening here is the proclamation of judgment on the nation of Edom. That is really what this book is about. It is written in such a way that it is to be announced to Edom, judgment is coming for your sins. Of course, Edom was that nation of people descended from Esau and Israel, the nation of people descended from Jacob. So why was God pronouncing judgment against the Edomites? Simply this, they rejoiced in the downfall of Israel. Again, remember the context. Remember the storyline of where we're at. Judgment has come. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people of God, Israel, have been decimated. And now they are being carried off to the pagan nations around them. All of this came because they stopped being faithful to their God. After decades of warnings and callings to repentance, this judgment came upon them. And yet, in the midst of all of this, in what should have brought, in some ways, tears to their eyes, and what should have caused them to mourn, Edom rejoiced. Edom rejoiced. And therefore, God says, I am going to judge you. The prophet says this, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Instead of being their brother's keeper, Edom did nothing to help Israel. In fact, they mocked them like they were part of the invading army. More than that, some even followed the invading army, the victors, into the city of Jerusalem, grabbing wealth for themselves. Still yet, in some ways, the height of their sin comes in that those last survivors of Jerusalem, those Israelites who are trying to flee off into the mountains to escape the Babylonians, the Edomites actually grabbed them point them out, drag them back to the Babylonians so that they can be captured and deported by the invaders. Now what should have the Edomites have done? Again, these are not just two nations that are next to each other. These are, in every real sense, blood relative, descendants of two twin brothers. And yet instead of helping, instead of mourning, they have rejoiced. They have taken pleasure in the fall of their brother Israel. And as wicked as this is, the reasons for it, frankly, should not be all that mysterious to us. Reading the Bible, we see that the word spoken to Rebekah was true. These two brothers and their descendants struggled constantly in conflict with one another. Get a Bible dictionary. Get an um, encyclopedia. Uh, just get the back of your Bible and look up Edom or Esau, and you will see dotted throughout the history of Israel conflict waging between these two nations. And yet it even goes back farther than that. Truth be told, this, this struggle, this conflict goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 3. Because after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God said, history will essentially break down now into two groups of people. The godly offspring who will follow after the Lord and the sinful offspring who would follow after the devil in rebellion against God. Therefore, this story of Edom and Israel is just one example of the larger spiritual conflict that has always and will always rage among God's people in the world until the end of time. And frankly, this morning, every one of us needs to come to a place where we ask ourselves, on which side of the conflict am I? Am I actively re rebelling against God, that is, even by ignoring His existence? 
Or have I turned to seek His face and the salvation that He offers? Have I sought to know Him and to love Him? Ultimately, all those that would rebel against God will only face judgment for their sin, just like Edom. And that brings us to the second truth that we see in the book of Obadiah, and that is this. We see the justice of divine judgment on all the world. The justice of divine judgment on all of the world. You know, throughout my life, I have heard some pretty amazing testimonies. Uh, I have sat and listened to people walk through their life of sin and tell of how God's grace invaded their life and saved them from that sin giving salvation not only in eternity, but even physical salvation from difficulty now. I have heard of people who have been enslaved to drugs and alcohol. I have heard from people who were saved from the point of suicide. And I think on two levels, Christians like to hear those kind of testimonies. On, on sort of the good level, at, when we're at our best, I think we like to hear those kind of testimonies because it displays the power of our God in salvation. It causes our hearts to rejoice that God is that powerful and that merciful, that loving, that good. On the less godly side, though, I think there is a perverse part of us that really just likes to hear how bad people can be. We really, we really enjoy hearing the depths and level of others' sinfulness. And that's why I think it's part of the reason why I've never heard someone build as saying you've got to come and hear this testimony you've got to come hear this person says and he gets up and he says with tears in his eyes i was dramatically saved because the pride of my heart had deceived me we never hear anybody say that do we why because we don't see pride as a serious sin do we give us the drugs give us the alcohol give us the murder give us the death row and hear of a glorious salvation but if someone were to come up and say my heart was steeped in pride we'd say eh What's the big deal, right? A little pride never hurt anybody, except maybe Satan, but we won't go there, okay? We don't see pride as being all that bad, but God says pride stands at the very center of sin. Just about any sin you can think of, and you dig down far enough, and at its core there is a heart of pride, that is there. And therefore, in fact, here on this sin of Edom, God says the reason why this sin has taken place is because, He says, the pride of their hearts has deceived them. God says, verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised, Edom. Why? Because the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Part of Edom's pride was bound up with their geography. Much like Switzerland, their nation was situated up on the rocky heights of mountains. And it helped this small nation feel big. It helped them feel proud because of their military fortifications. They thought, no one can touch us up here. No one can come after us up here. Like the eagle who sets its nest up higher than any predator and therefore feels like its babies are secure. So Edom sat up on the mountain feeling like nothing can touch us. And yet God says, I can touch you. In fact, more than that, I will take you down. Though you feel secure, I will humble you and make you feel like the smallest of the nations. Now, why is he going to do this? Because God is just. 
First of all, pride is one of the worst sins in God's mind. Because in our pride, we feel independent, self-sufficient, and invulnerable. In other words, we forget that we are mere creations of a sovereign God. We forget that we need that sovereign God. But more than that, God is going to punish Edom because in their pride, in their triumphal arrogance and gloating, they were really no better than Israel in their sin. And if God is going to judge His people, how much more should He judge those who are sinful and not His people? There is a warning here, I think, for all of us even today. Think of a country like Germany in World War II. Here was a country that was full of history, at one time wealth, culture, even had a strong religious heritage. The very reformation of the church, the reason why we're, we're all here this morning was because of a German monk named Luther. They had all of these things, and yet the spirit of the country became twisted with greed and a lust for power, and it fell ultimately to the world's armies. Now, should we gloat over that? Should we laugh at the so-called Krauts and deride Germany for its defeat? What about our Cold War enemy Russia? That country nearly collapsed in the late 80s. Should we stand back in pride and think ourselves better than them? What about a church? What about a group of God's people who have not been doing things biblically and rampant sin comes and destroys a church, damages the souls of Christians? Should we, back, should we stand back and say they got what was coming to them because of their sin? God clearly says no. He says, no, he says, be careful lest in our pride we deceive ourselves and think we could never fall in the same way. I hope that if anything, if anything, particularly on this July 4th weekend, when you will find, I think, a a Christian who though seeks to acknowledge my citizenship is first and foremost in heaven under God and therefore that is where my ultimate allegiance lies, one who loves this country and its freedoms. Nevertheless, I hope and I pray that if nothing else, the economic problems of this country will do one thing and one thing only and that is humble us. Because as a nation, we are proud and arrogant. Not just them out there, but even us Christians in this country. And God says, be careful. Be careful that you do not become like Edom, because Edom is an example to the nations, though who exalted herself will be humbled by me. Whether it is explicit opposition to God or whether it is simply prideful arrogance of hearts, God will judge the nations for their sin. He says this in verse 15. He says, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. God says, I am a just God and therefore you will receive a just judgment that is in keeping with the sin of your life. God says in verses 9 through 10, not the wisest men, not the mightiest of men will be able to hold back my judgment upon you. I will come and overturn Edom just like one day I will overturn every nation in judgment upon them. 
from the very beginning of creation, there has been spiritual conflict because of sin. And that sin will one day be judged by God. All the nations will stand before him to receive a just recompense for what they have done to others in their rebellion against God. But, but even in that sobering message, there is a word of hope, both for God's people and for the nations. This is the last thing we want to see this morning. Obadiah says the hope of the world is found ultimately in Jacob's future. The hope of Jacob's future is the hope of the world's future. Though the people of Edom are addressed by the prophet, Israel is clearly meant to hear this message. God wants them to be assured he is just, but more than that, he wants them to remember he is merciful. Therefore, in the second part of this book, God holds out the hope to people, hope of redemption and reconciliation with him. Though Israel's being taken off into exile, God wants them to know, I have not forgotten you. Though Edom and Babylon look like the clear victors of the battle, remember, your hope does not lie in their future. Though you are carried off as exiles in their land, do not put your faith in them. Do not put your faith in their religion. Do not put your faith in their government. Because one day it will fall. Instead, you put your faith in me because I am not done with you, Israel, my covenant people. The Lord says, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. God promises one day that though all the nations fall, His people will stand through the judgment. That the people of Jacob will one day be restored. And in the fullness of time, the Bible shows us that restoration ultimately comes through a descendant of Jacob, a son of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the one who came in the fulfillment of the promises of a Savior. And He came in such a way that both God's just wrath against prideful sinners would be satisfied, and yet He would also be able to show mercy to a humble, repentant people. For on the cross where Jesus died, He bore the weight of sin for those who stand guilty before God. And He promises. God promises that we can receive the benefits of that sacrifice of the cross by simply doing this, avoiding the sin of Edom. You see, pride keeps us from God, but humility brings us near. Therefore, in humility, if we admit that we are sinners, if we humbly admit that if God were to give us what is fair, to give us what we deserve, it would be nothing but judgment. If in humility we say, I need mercy. If in humility we say, oh God, I need a Savior, I need you, then God promises that He will in fact show mercy. He will be there for us. He will bring forgiveness for our sins. The Apostle Paul says if we humbly trust in Christ by faith to make us right with God, God Himself will forgive us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stands against us with all of its legal demands. For God considers this set aside, nailed to the cross. Therefore, this is why there can be hope for the nations in the midst of coming judgment. Even in the midst of judgment that God may meet out in this life. Because he has not forgotten his people. 
He is a God who is merciful, and through Christ he offers that mercy, that salvation and forgiveness to all nations. After World War I, France wanted to be prepared for another German attack. So under the leadership of André Maginot, the nation built the Maginot Line. From 1929 to 1938, France constructed a line of fortifications along its border with Germany and Italy. This line was a series of concrete bunkers that featured tank obstacles, artillery, machine gun posts, even air-conditioned living quarters. So confident was France in this line of defense that no one in that country worried when Germany began building up its war machine under Hitler. After all, Hitler couldn't invade. They had the Maginot Line. He's nothing to be worried about. But he was something to be worried about. Because Germany, Germany essentially went around the line, up through Belgium, down into France. And of course you know, France very quickly fell to the German forces. Prideful arrogance was France's undoing. Friends and loved ones, let me tell you, it does not matter. It does not matter how impressive, it does not matter how secure and how certain the object of your trust is. If it is not God himself, it cannot save you. It cannot save you. God is a just God. He is a sovereign God. And in that just sovereignty, He will one day punish all the nations, all people according to their sins. Yet God is also merciful. And in that mercy, He has extended the offer to salvation to all who would humble themselves and trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins alone. For you that are here that are not Christians, this is the invitation for you to become one, to find love and salvation through God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And for those of you here that are already Christians, remember this, God is sovereign. Even today when very small ways here in this country, very large ways in other places around the world, His church seems to be attacked and Beleaguered, much like Israel was in the Old Testament, remember God is still in control. He has made the promise that not even the gates of hell itself will prevail against His church, and you can be sure He will keep that promise. He will ensure the safety of His people for all eternity. Perhaps not their physical safety in this life, but their eternal safety as they are hidden forever with His own Son, Christ, to experience an eternity of God's love. Therefore, this morning, our response is simple. Trust. Trust in the sovereign God who is both just and merciful. Trust in the God of Israel who saves the nations through His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we think about this message that You have for us through the book of Obadiah, Father, we pray that we would be able to be emboldened in our faith in You. Father, it is so easy to be caught up in the comings and goings of this world, to lose our confidence in You, to somehow think that You are not just, that You are not merciful. And yet, Father, I pray that when we think those things, we would simply look to the cross, that place where Your justice was perfectly meted out and, God, Your mercy and love was most amazingly displayed. Father, I pray that whether it is for the first time or whether it is on the back of 20 years of faith, that this morning everyone here would look to you through Christ and trust their lives to you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.